From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Most children survive childhood cancers today, although many will experience late effects. Here to discuss the long-term outcomes of childhood cancer is pediatric oncologist Dr. Amy Caruso-Brown. She's an assistant professor of pediatrics, bioethics, and humanities at Upstate. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So what do we mean when we say long-term outcomes? So a couple of things. Sometimes when we're talking about long-term outcomes, we're talking about survival and, and risk of relapse after cancer, but we're also talking about the secondary effects of the cancer and mainly the cancer treatment. Um, so a lot of the treatments we use for cancer are still very toxic. The way I usually explain it to families is that most treatment for cancer, most chemotherapy works by killing cells that are growing really fast. And the cancer cells are growing the fastest. So they get killed the most easily and they tend not to come back because they're pretty damaged. They're not healthy cells. But we also damage the healthy cells in doing that. And some of that causes the immediate side effects that we think about like the nausea and vomiting and hair loss. But some of those effects are life long um, or can show up years later if they show up at all. So that's what we're thinking about when we talk about late effects. That's pretty frightening when you think about it that way, but um, you have the immediate issue of trying to treat a child in the current day, Mm -hmm. present moment. So what percentage of children survive childhood cancer and then what percentage go on to have like late-term effects? So the estimates in the U.S. and in other developed um, and high-income countries right now is that it's probably about 88%. Um, So about 12% will die either from their cancer or from the immediate toxic effects of their therapy from immediate complications. Um, So most children are cured. I think that's something people often don't realize when they think about just how devastating it would be to hear that your child has cancer. Your chances of being cured as a young child are actually much better than your chances of being cured as an adult. Oh, okay. That is encouraging. Yeah, and and we've made tremendous progress in the last 40 and 50 years. But then what are some of the most common late effects in... Um Uh, So there's a lot. One of the big ones that we talk about a lot now and has gotten a lot more attention is infertility. A lot of the chemotherapy causes infertility. Radiation, if it's near the pelvic organs and the reproductive organs, can cause infertility. Um, And increasingly, people have realized that we need to tell families and and children, if they're old enough to understand upfront, that this shouldn't. I think a, a generation or two ago, people didn't mention it. They didn't talk about it. The children who survived grew up and then were surprised or shocked or devastated when they couldn't have their own children. And the thought now is that by talking about this from the beginning, offering fertility preservation when it's available, but Mm -hmm. making people aware that not, not everyone chooses it. So we talk to teenagers about storing sperm, about storing eggs. A lot of kids don't want to do that, and that's okay, but just the awareness, and we have talked to have about the adoption. Option. Yeah, that, they, right. that there are options out there, but it may not be having their biological children, and, and they should be aware of that. And I think it makes a difference just knowing going through it that this will not be a shock later on. Okay. What about just the um, living with the idea that, you know, the cancer could come back? That's really hard. Um, And I was just talking to a family yesterday who's finishing therapy about how hard the transition off therapy is because people go very quickly from having 
a lot of visits and someone constantly checking things and fairly frequent scans if they had a solid tumor like a Wilms tumor or bone marrow tests or blood tests to look for leukemia to not having much of anything. And, and there's follow-up every few months, but it's not nearly as often as during the on-therapy stage. And for a lot of people, that's a source of anxiety. Some, suddenly you're not being checked as much. Um, right. So if you it, come every week and you get reassured, that's mm-hmm. that's nice. And so if you don't have that. Yep. And then suddenly you have to learn to not to, to sort of cope on a day to day basis without that reassurance. And I think that's a really challenging part. Depending on the cancer, the risk of relapse can mostly be in the first year or it can last five or 10 years later. So for some children, it's something that they will learn to live with on a day-to-day basis for a long period of time. And I think we're getting better at providing the psychosocial support and helping them figure out coping mechanisms to live with that in the background. It's a sense of your mortality that most people don't get until they're much older. Wow. Well, now having had one cancer, does that set you up uh, at a higher risk to have another unrelated cancer? So it does, yeah. Some of the treatments that we use, some kinds of chemotherapy, not all of them, but some specific drugs um, and radiation actually can cause, we call them secondary cancers or second malignant neoplasms sometimes. Um, And the risk is about 3% over 20 years. So after after 20 years after therapy, about 3% of children will have developed a secondary cancer that we think is related to their treatment. You have to put that in the context of the fairly high rates of cancer in the U.S. So one out of four adults will die from cancer. And if you get lung cancer 60 years from now and smoked a lot, it's probably not as related to your pediatric cancer treatment as to your smoking. As to smoking. Uh, but there is that risk. And that's something I try to prepare people for too, just to know. It's not it shouldn't be a major source of anxiety because it's still a small risk, but it's not something we want to leave out and then have someone come in later and tell them your child has cancer again and we know what caused it. It was what we did and have them say, nobody ever told me that was even possible. This oh. is something people should know about when they're, when they're going through therapy. And what about um, quality of life issues? Are there? Yeah, so there's an increased risk for a lot of conditions that can worsen quality of life. We worry most about the ones that might not only cause some disability or impair quality of life, but can also be life-threatening. So some forms of chemotherapy and radiation to the chest can cause heart failure. They can also cause pulmonary fibrosis um, and lung problems. And we Years mo- later. Years later, yeah. Okay. And the, the risk for heart failure is really a lifelong risk. As with some of these other late effects, the the risk interacts with the other things you're exposed to. So we go through life, we're exposed to all of these toxins, we don't always eat what we should, we don't always exercise as much. But if you've also had chemotherapy as a child or radiation, your risk from, say, a heart attack is that much greater. Uh, so in the early studies, the first the first group of children that we really consistently cured was children with Hodgkin's disease, diagnosed in the late 60s and 70s. And beginning in the 80s, St. Jude started following these children, and that was the first childhood cancer survivor study. And so they started really being able to see what late effects occurred, what were the risk factors, what dose of radiation was likely to cause these problems. And since then, we've gotten much, much better about monitoring so that I can now tell children or tell their parents, you need to have an echocardiogram to look at how your heart is functioning this often during therapy and this often in the first couple of years after. But then you really need to keep up with those tests throughout your life. Um, so sometimes we'll give 
uh, families either a card or a sheet of paper that summarizes their therapy that says what kinds of screening we would recommend. And then even after they've grown up, after they've transitioned to adult care or gone off to live in another city, they have that and can take it to their new doctor and say, this is what happened to me and this is what you need to do to make sure those late effects get caught early when they can be treated. Wow. Well, I've got some more questions, but this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Amy Caruso-Brown, a pediatric oncologist at Upstate. Now, when in the process do you talk to families and children about late effects? I mean, if you're just talking to someone about the, the new diagnosis, when do you bring up this? Yeah, so I not in the very first talk. Um, in the very first talk, when I'm, I'm telling someone what is usually the worst day of their life at that right. point, or one of the worst days of their life, I try to focus on that we can treat the cancer, that for most cancers, there's at least some chance of cure. There are still ones that are very, very hard to cure, but for almost everything, we have treatments. We have a chance of curing the child, and I want them to remember that and not worry about anything else until we get the exact diagnosis and can talk about exactly what the treatment is. I want people to remember that they didn't do anything to cause this, that they couldn't have done anything to prevent it, and I don't want them to be thinking about more than that because it's pretty overwhelming. For anyone who's gotten bad news, it's literally the wind rushing, water rushing in your ear, head underwater, really overwhelmed. So that's not the time to be talking about what might happen in 20 years or what might happen in 40 years. When we talk about exactly what kind of cancer it is and exactly what treatments we're going to give, then we usually start talking about the side effects for drugs. And for each of the chemotherapy drugs that we might use, I mention the most common late effects. What are the ones that you're most likely to see or that are most serious? Um, So that's the point where I usually mention that there is some risk of secondary leukemia for some of our chemotherapy or that there is a risk of heart problems. And I emphasize needing to follow up regularly to catch things early, um, which is a way of just making them feel like there is something we can do. This isn't a situation in which the doctors and the patients and families are totally helpless. There are things we can do to help catch these things early when they're more manageable and more likely to be treatable. So the screening and monitoring, that's sort of one way to maybe not necessarily prevent, but at least stay on top of what may come. Yeah, and catch things early. And I also now tell families, our data's old. Our data, to, to look at late effects, we have to look at children who were treated for cancer 10, 20, 30 years ago. Treatment has changed a lot, both the treatment for cancer, I think we're much better now at giving exactly the doses that children need, not more and not less. So we look at things like how they respond to the initial therapy, and if the response is great, then we don't need to give them extra therapy. If their response is a little slower, they might need extra doses to get to that cure, knowing those are more likely to cause late effects. So I talk to families about how we're trying to tailor their treatment to exactly what their child needs, and that's a way of preventing late effects. And when we look at that old data, we don't necessarily know how this will play out for the children being treated right now. In adult medicine, there have also been great changes and great improvements and strides in care. And so I don't know what treatment for heart failure will look like in 30 years. If the child in front of me is one of those who does develop heart failure from radiation or chemotherapy, we may have artificial hearts that we can easily implant in 40 years. The options may be very, very different. And so I try to create that sense of hope and optimism because I think that's really important. Do you uh, ever talk with your patients about your father having cancer at age 19? 
Uh, he, sometimes, he yeah. So some uh, parents have asked me why I went into this, and mm. that is a big part of the story. So that is the time when I will most honest, most often answer honestly about my own experiences. Um, so my dad was one of the early Hodgkin survivors, um, and like most or many of the, the children and young adults in that cohort, he had a really early heart attack. Um, he was in his early 40s, and he had had a lot of much higher doses of radiation to his chest wall than we give now. Um, he eventually developed pulmonary fibrosis. He developed heart failure. He had some infections related to his therapy, but he also worked until the day he died. He had a really rewarding, Mm -hmm. wonderful life. He had children, uh, which if he had actually been treated a few years later, he wouldn't have gotten radiation, but he would have gotten chemotherapy medicines that cause infertility. Uh, So I wouldn't be here if he had been a little bit younger. Um, So in, in that sense, that's a really powerful story to me, because even though he had these late effects, he had a wonderful life and he was really he, re- he was really aware of that and appreciative of that in a sense that I don't know that he would have had without his cancer or without his other illnesses. Uh, and he lived for 45 years after his diagnosis. That's got to be encouraging for patients to hear about that. I think so. It, it encourages me in what I do, that when I see a family and they're struggling, that there are some really amazing, beautiful outcomes. What about the patients themselves? I guess the age, it's going to be dependent on the age, but mm-hmm. how involved do the children get in, I don't know, making decisions about whether to take this medication that might cause problems later on? It varies a lot, um, and a, sort of a classic stance in pediatrics and in ethics is that a lot of it depends not just on age, but how long they've been ill. So a child who is nine who has had leukemia since they were three and been through relapses and been through therapies is in a much better position to talk about the options and to help support their parents in making a decision and be supported by their parents in making their own decision than a child who is the same age but has just been diagnosed. That when they've had experiences and they sort of know how the hospital works, they know how the treatments feel, they have an expertise and a maturity from that expertise that another child who has not been sick before may not. Um, And depending, some of the therapies do cause some cognitive problems. So some older children who have had a lot of therapy may not be the same age, their biological age may not be their cognitive age in terms of making decisions. So we have to work through that with the families. And every family has a different style and different preferences in terms of how involved their children are going to be. But in general, we try to tell children what's going on to a level that they can understand. And we try to give them choices about how involved they want to be in the decision making. Well, interesting. Thank you so much for talking about this. You're welcome. My guest has been pediatric oncologist, Dr. Amy Caruso-Brown. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.